themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as many had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Carissa. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, we can, we can give a little good morning back. That's good. I'm just especially grateful this morning to, uh, to be a part of this church family. You guys, you guys are an awesome church. Um, but I do have to correct a misconception just before we get going here. Um, there's a misconception that uh, heaven about heaven. Heaven will be an experience where you're on a cloud and you'll be singing on a cloud with a harp. And that is actually not true. Uh, the truth is heaven will be an experience where you will be um, singing on a cloud with a banjo. And that's my picture of heaven. I can't, I can't help it. One day I want to learn to play the banjo. It just has a special place in my own heart. Uh, we're in a series on the book of Acts this fall. We're looking at chapters 1 through 12. Acts is a one-of-a-kind book in the Bible. It's the only one of its kind. It's the only book in the Bible that tells us uh, the story of the early church and the early Christians. So it's one of the best places for us to go for questions like, why can't I have a relationship with Jesus uh, and not the church? if you've ever asked that question. It's a great place to go if you have the question, what is the church supposed to do? What's the church supposed to be all about? We're calling this series Blueprint because that's one way that we can see what the book of Acts, in fact, is. We can read the book of Acts as a blueprint. In other words, the design, the plans for how Jesus built and builds his church. So that's how we're looking at it this whole fall. We are in our third sermon in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to, to open it up. If you see one there in the pew, go ahead and grab it and open up to Acts chapter 2. Just a quick review of this chapter. Second chapter in the book. It's a chapter of first. First. The first day of the church ever. That's the beginning of Acts 2. It tells us some crazy things were happening, things that never happened before all happened at the same time. There was a sound of the violent rushing wind. There were tongues and flames of fire on people's heads. People, over 100 people were speaking in a language that they had probably never even heard before. So it's quite a miraculous account. That's the first day of the church. The first sermon is when we see Peter. And the Apostle Peter, disciple of Jesus, just a month earlier, he had denied that he even knew Jesus. And now about a, a little bit over a month later, he is standing up and preaching a passionate and bold sermon about Jesus. And at the end of that sermon, 3,000 people responded and were baptized. 
And then we come to the passage we just heard read, that Carissa just read for us, Acts 2, 42 through 47, where we see the first church beginning to meet together. I want to start this morning with a multiple choice question. I don't know what your favorite types of questions are. I, I kind of like multiple choice um, rather than fill in the blank. And the question is this. Um, maybe you're just hearing this review or kind of hearing about Acts 2 for the first time, so it might be a little bit difficult, but if you've been with us, Acts chapter 2, what's the highlight? What would you say is the highlight of, of this chapter? Is it the miracle of tongues and wind and fire? It's, it's quite spectacular, that account. Would it be the bold and passionate gospel sermon, which you could argue is the most powerful sermon ever given, possibly? Could it be the 3,000 people who were baptized, huge results, or fourth, D? Is it the small groups of people eating in homes, learning and sharing life together? The church, the passage we just read. We all tend to be enamored with the spectacular. We like big numbers and big events, great speaking, great preaching. But in 2, verse 42, Luke puts all these big, extraordinary things right alongside people who were in their homes discussing Scripture, eating together, and praying. Doesn't that last one sound just pretty ordinary? But if you look in the text, in verses 43 and 47... What we read is that it was ordinary. This was everyday life for the early church, for the first church. But it was also extraordinary that if we're really looking to be wowed, if we want awe, a sense of awe to overcome us, if we're looking for joy and deep gladness to see people's needs really being met, to see what it looks like when people are really experiencing the presence of God and are caught up in praise together, we want to see God at work, Luke is taking our attention and saying it's not in the spectacular and the big. Look at the ordinary life of a church like this one. So I think if we ask Luke this question, he would probably say, you forgot E, all of the above. And I would say, fair enough. But I think if he had to pick one, I think he would pick the passage we just read. 42 through 47, because in this passage, he's showing us what all the signs and the miracles and the spectacular was pointing to. He's showing us what this sermon created. He's showing us what happened to those 3,000 people and their lives. And he says, in those people, Jesus built something the world had never seen before, a community in a church like this one. If you want to follow along and take notes, we're going to look at three different things about this church. First, and we're going to take these one at a time. We're going to look at why we need a church like this. Why we need a church like this. The Bible teaches us from cover to cover that our need for community is rooted in the very nature of God himself. The very nature of reality itself. God has eternally existed in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in making us in his image, he made us for community. He made us to exist, to thrive, and live in community. This is why Acts 
isn't a collection of stories about how Jesus was at work in individual lives, although he was. Acts is the story of how Jesus built churches like this one in all over the world, how Jesus was building communities, that God's blueprint for us is that we'd find him and that we'd really only find ourselves and that we would really only find our purpose when we find it in community with others. This is why when we live in a world like ours that so stresses individualism, independence, self-sufficiency, self-expression, self-identity that we can struggle with loneliness. And many of us are. You may have seen uh, some of these articles, but Vivek Murphy, he's a former U.S. Surgeon General. He's now devoted his, his career to raising awareness about what he calls an epidemic of loneliness. He says, the chief and most important health concern of our time is a matter first of social health. And he points out that our social health directly affects our physical health. And the studies have shown that the physical effects of loneliness can be as harmful to the human body as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. This year, in England, a new governmental position was created called the Minister of Loneliness to deal with this exact problem in their country. MIT psychologist Sherry Turkle has written a book called Alone Together. She's devoted her entire career to studying the effects of technology on human relationship. And first she started off very optimistic, but her optimism has begun to wane. And so in her research, what she's been discovering is that although technology promises us greater connection, it's actually in many ways leading us to live more isolated and lonely lives. So loneliness, it affects all kinds of people, young and old. You can be married or single, kids, extroverted, introverted. You can seem to have lots of friends, but loneliness is a mark of our time for all of us. And we could talk about the many culprits and these strong forces that are at work that are, are maybe pulling us apart from relationship and that make it hard for us to do Community. We could talk about technology. We could talk about busyness. We could talk about fear and shame. We could talk about betrayals and wounds and hurts, our own selfishness and our own sin. But here in Acts 2, what Acts is telling us and showing us is that there is a stronger force at work that not only pushes us into community, but creates the kind of community that every type of person was made for and that we all need. And that force is God the Holy Spirit, verses 1 through 20, and the message about Jesus. When God the Holy Spirit and the message about Jesus come together, what they do is they create communities like this one. And there's nothing stronger than that. Look again at Acts 2.42. It says in this summary statement, what happened to all these people? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is a one-sentence summary of the kind of person, the kind of community, rather, that every person needs. These four things. We all need this. 
And we need a church like this because these four things here in Acts 2.42 are four things that we were never meant to do and actually cannot do alone and by ourselves. Let's look at, at these four things. Four things we were never meant to do and cannot do on our own. The first is learn. The apostles' teaching is listed first here intentionally. The apostles' teaching was the center and the heart and the glue of the church. Peter's sermon earlier, the, the verses earlier, is meant to be a sample of what the apostles taught. What did the apostles teach? Look what Peter taught. They taught the gospel. They taught how the whole Bible, which at that time was the Old Testament, is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. So they spent time searching the scriptures, discussing and dialoguing and seeing Jesus together in the Bible. The Bible is not something we can just read on our own through our own study and podcasts. We need to discuss it. We need to ask questions. We need to learn and be taught in community. The second thing we were never meant to do and can't do on our own is have stuff. It says in Acts 2.42 that they were devoted to the fellowship. What does that mean, to the fellowship? It makes me think of the Fellowship of the Ring, which is one of my favorite books. The fellowship here is uh, the word in the Greek is the word koinonia. You may have heard of it. It's a hard word to translate. But what it means is, is people who are sharing life together. And in the sharing of life together, they're also sharing their resources. And so as you read this and you read the account of how they handled this, um, you may be wondering, did they give up the whole idea of private property because they were sharing so generously? It doesn't mean that. They didn't give up the concept of private property, but it does mean they gave up the concept of anyone's ultimate ownership over their stuff. It all became God's, and it all became open to be shared because they were now family. The way they thought about their stuff changed radically. It's like the difference between thinking like a roommate or thinking as family members, right? If you've had roommates, how do roommates handle their life together? You put your name on the milk in the fridge, right? And often, if you've had roommates, when you do the dishes, you do your dishes. And you leave all the other dirty dishes there in the sink. And when it comes time to pay rent, when it comes time uh, to pay the utilities, you, you split it all up and you pay your portion. But that's not how it works in family, right? The milk is shared, the dishes are shared, in theory. And everything that comes in is used for all of us. This is the kind of relationship we were meant to have with our stuff. And it's not ours. We're never meant to have it and own it alone. The third thing they did, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. Now, technically, we can eat on our own, but we're not meant to. The breaking of bread here likely refers to the Lord's Supper as a part of a common meal. Now, this is fascinating to me because if you think about how we do church, we have our page 7 and 8 in the bulletin, right? These are our announcements every week. We talk about life and community. We have programs. We have strategies. We have things we want to do. In the early church, in this church, they had one strategy. And it's, it is told to us what that is. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to eat in homes. And everything will happen there. That was the context of ministry in this church, in the early church. So every time they got to page 8 in their bulletin, it just said, 
eat in homes. Bring out the scriptures and pray together. Simple but powerful. Eating together was a statement. It still is a statement in our culture. When you eat with someone, you say, you're my equal. We are one. You are valued. Simply eating together creates belonging and bonds between people. As a side note, to speak of our life and community page, this is why uh, preparing and buying and bringing food and simply eating with those who are in a place of need, like we all hope to do as a part of our Family Promise initiative this fall, is such a powerful way to show others Jesus. And this is what we do at Hard Park and through Family Promise. We were never meant to learn, have stuff, or eat alone. And lastly, we were never meant to only pray alone. The the literal translation of this fourth component of the community is that they devoted themselves to the prayers. There's a definite article in front of the word prayer. What this refers to is a time of regular and corporate prayer. Private and unplanned prayer is essential, but it's not sufficient to sustain our spiritual lives. We need to pray with and for other people. Prayer. Prayer creates a culture of humility in a community like nothing else can because in prayer, in the very nature of prayer, you're saying, I can't. I need help. I have trouble that's bigger than me. Prayer at the center of a community unites people because it's grounded in humility. These four things are really a package deal. The absence of any one of these in community can cause spiritual imbalance and can cause spiritual drift in our lives. These are four things we were never meant to do and cannot do on our own, which is why we all need a church like this. Question for us to consider. Do we we see the need in our own lives for this kind of community, these kinds of relationships. And if we're not regularly learning, sharing, eating, and praying with other Christians, my Christian friends, we cannot sustain our faith or be faithful to the mission and the purpose that God has given us for our lives. So if you don't have this kind of community, I urge you, find it. We all need it. We need a community in a church like this. Secondly, And contrasting how we resist a church like this. Why is it that this passage for for Christians throughout history, across time, across culture, this, this passage, Acts 2, 42 through 47, Christians have looked at this passage and said, yes, that. That is what we want. That is what we need to do. And yet at the same time, Why is it so hard for us to be the church like this? We might be really attracted to it. We might be very convinced that we need it. But there is something also within us, if we are honest, that resists a church like this. And I want to focus on two ways we can resist a church like this. The first is we resist the commitment. We resist the commitment. Verse 42, the very first Words of the text say this church was devoted. This is a word that conveys both intensity and commitment together. 
They were devoted. Nothing about this church was accidental, casual, or just organic. Every day, verse 46, they devoted themselves to meeting together, both in the temple, public worship, and from house to house. Here's how we often think, and here's even for me, how I often think. We want to say, I'm all for community. It's awesome. It sounds great. But it needs to be on my terms. I'll need an opt-out clause from this community that I reserve the right to use whenever I choose at any time. Isn't that true? Do you feel that? What's underneath that, that statement? What's underneath that? There's a belief underneath that, and that belief is this. We believe that the freedom from commitment is what guards our happiness. We believe that the, it's freedom from commitment is that which guards our happiness. We can't be tied down to the same boring, same old, same old people and the weird people in our communities or our churches. What if I miss out on a better church? What if I miss out on something better out there? We want the individual freedom to seek happiness elsewhere. We say that will safeguard my joy. If I'm losing my joy in community, if I'm not feeling it anymore, that's why I have freedom. It's my safeguard to go find it somewhere else. Freedom from commitment. What Acts 2, 42 through 47 shows us is that it's the other way around. It's the freedom in commitment that guards true happiness. It's the freedom in commitment. This was a community of great joy and gladness. They were experiencing wonder and awe. Wonder at other people. All the weird and crazy people that were gathered there, that didn't know each other, that were strangers, and joy and wonder most of all in God. This is the same principle we see at work in our marriages. It's the devotion, it's the covenant, it's the commitment that provides the safety for everyone to be themselves without the fear of abandonment or rejection. If everyone can opt out, then no one is really themselves. And if no one is really themselves, no one is really joyful or connected. Commitment, commitment is what makes real connection possible. But that kind of commitment is risky. So we resist. We resist the commitment. We also resist the ownership. It says all the believers in verse 44 were together. They held all things in common. This, this phrase, they were together, is a hard phrase to translate also. It's, it's this word that just connotes this sense of life together. That I own this community just as much as you own this community. I'm 100% in and you're 100% in. We are together in this. That's ownership. And Christians, and I speak to myself here as well, we often resist this and it, and it shows up in the language that we use when we talk about church. Because we often say, what church do you go to? Are you going to church? Which betrays how we think about church. Let me share an illustration like this. Think about this. We have 52 weeks in a year. The average service on a Sunday morning, we'll say it's an hour and a half to do the math. Uh, so that's 78 hours per year if you go to church, 52 Sundays per year. 
In comparison, the average American spends over 540 uh, hours per year in their car, over 1,000 hours per year watching TV or movies, and about 1,800 hours at work. So why share those statistics? It's just a way to demonstrate the reality that if church is simply an event that we go to, or maybe a couple events that we go to as a part of our lives, in all likelihood, it will have very little impact on us. In all likelihood, it won't be a church like this one. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, they didn't go to church. They were the church. It was a part of their identity. It was a part of who they were. We are together. That's how they thought of themselves. Let me say this. One of the main ways we resist ownership in the church is uh, through, through blaming and pointing the finger at the church, a big C, little c, churches in general, at all that is wrong with the church. The sinfulness of the church, the brokenness of the church. What needs to be said here is that there has been much harm done by the church, much pain caused by the church. There have been needs neglected by the church. There has been hypocrisy at all levels of the church, and I know this, and this, this is something that I do as well. It's easier to point the finger out there. And these things, all these things have happened in my life. I have been hurt by the church. I have seen the church in its brokenness. And I think the first thing as a pastor and as a Christian that we need to do in light of that reality is to own it. Is to own it. For me to say, if that is you, if you've been wounded and hurt by the sinfulness of the church, then I am sorry. And I am sorry for that. But instead of pointing the finger, we need to first own it. Acts tells us we have to hold two things in tension when we think about the church. One way to describe it would be to say we need to hold two things in tension. One is the ideal church and one is the real church. This is an ideal summary of the church. I don't know if they saw themselves and they said, we are the best church ever. Everyone's going to look at us. There's going to be a summary written about us. Luke's going to do it. And they're going to go, that's the one best church ever that ever existed. They probably looked around at each other and just thought, we're just, we're doing ordinary life. Yes, the Spirit showed up in mighty ways. Their lives were being transformed. But this was an everyday ordinary group of people. But God looked at it, and he inspired here in Acts chapter 2 and said, look at all the good I'm doing in the ordinary church. So God gives us glimpses of the ideal church. He says, don't downplay that. I am working and doing incredible things in the ordinary church. But there's also the real church, which is seeing through God's eyes there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot that's not right. This church here, the first church, and all other New Testament churches had issues too. If you go on, and, and we will, to read in the book of Acts, Luke shows us examples of this church, this awesome church. They didn't want to reach out to other people, especially those they looked down upon culturally, like Samaritans. They had to be pushed out. 
through suffering and persecution to reach them. Peter, the leader of this church, fell into racism that he had preached himself that had no place in the church at Pentecost and later. In chapter 6, we'll see this church overlooked people's needs because of their age and their language. And this church didn't believe a guy named Paul when he said, my life's been transformed by Jesus. They said, no, you're not welcome. This church, they also had real work that needed to be done. But my Christian friends, we hold the two in tension, just like we do with our own lives. In Christ, God is doing amazing things more than we would ever know in our lives. We can't see it all. We trust that he is at work. And we grieve over and we seek God for all the sin, the brokenness, and the imperfection that remains in us. So it is with the church. This church shows us that every Christian, in reality, is a member, is a part of the church. We have a part to play. We have a part to own in a particular church. We are all a part of the church, capital C. To use the fancy terminology, our soteriology is connected to ecclesiology. We are saved. We are saved into the church. They're inseparable. There's no such thing as solo Christianity or private faith, Jesus without the church or quitting the church in the New Testament. So let's think together, my Christian friends, my Trinity family, how is there resistance in my own heart to this? To a church like this, where am I avoiding commitment? Where am I resisting ownership? We all need to ask those questions. If we need a church like this, but if at the same time we all resist a church like this in significant ways, how then can we build a church like this? The answer is we cannot. Acts shows us only Jesus can build a church like this. It's there in the story. Jesus ascends to heaven at the right hand of the Father. He sends the Spirit. The Spirit speaks the gospel through Peter. And a church like this is born. It wasn't a strategy. It wasn't a program. It is a fulfillment. It is a fulfillment of all God was calling humanity to be from the very beginning. Throughout the Old Testament, this was the kind of community God was seeking to build in Israel. They were to have no poor among them, Deuteronomy 15.4. They were to be a house of prayer for all nations, Jeremiah. They were to learn and teach the word together. They were to be a people whose feasts were infectious occasions of joy for all the nations, but they never got there. What never happened in all the history of Israel or the world happened right here in Jerusalem. It wasn't just the ideas or the teaching or the inspiration of Jesus. It was the living and the risen Jesus that made this possible, who built this. It cannot be built by human effort or strategy or even a new resolve of commitment and ownership. I've been a part of small group ministries trying to build community and lead communities for 20 years. All my ministry, I've been a part of it. And maybe... Somebody might say, well, what have you learned in 20 years of overseeing small groups and community groups? It would be this. This is only a community like this. A church like this is only possible if Jesus builds it. How does he build it? 
There are many ways. But I think there's one factor here that Luke highlights more than any other. Luke, the author of Luke and Acts. And that factor, the tool, the thing that that Jesus uses to build this church is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. If you read Luke, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, when you see what place forgiveness has in both of these books, you'll see that forgiveness to Luke, that's the thing that Jesus has brought to the world that has revolutionized all relationships. It's only Luke who says, he who is forgiven much loves much, who records that saying of Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, he says, if your brother or sister asks for forgiveness seven times in one day, forgive them every time. Luke was the one who made sure, the only gospel writer who made sure we knew that Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At the end of Luke, chapter 24, he says, here's the mission. Forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And that's what happened in Acts 2. When Peter stood up in Acts 2, 38, he said, when they said, what do we do? He said, turn, repent, repent and received the forgiveness of sins. And when 3,000 people received forgiveness of sins, this church was built. In every other human community, we have to earn our place in it with some kind of cost to get in. In every other kind of human community, we have to keep our place in it. There's always a cost for breaking the rules and the standards of the community. We could think of a lot of examples. When I was in middle school, in order to earn my way into the group that I thought, this is the cool group, I need to be in this group, I need to, there's a cost to get in, though, to be in that group. And my cost to bear was, I think these people will like me if I'm like the class clown who gets in trouble and who pretends I don't like to do anything, any homework or anything. That's the price that I need to pay. And it worked. But I spent some time in the principal's office. That was my cost to bear a group of friends. You have to be cool. You have to have enough shared interest. That's the cost to get in. You do the wrong thing. You hang out with the wrong people. You get kicked out and excluded. In the workplace, you've got to have the right resume to get hired. There are many ways for you to be fired and excluded from that workplace. To be a student, you have to have uh, the ability to get into the college and stay in through grades. Forgiveness. Forgiveness means in Jesus' community, the church, the cost to get in and the the cost to stay in have been paid by another fully. When we're free from earning our place or keeping our place, then we're free to love and serve and accept one another as the broken and sinful people we all are. And Jesus uses that to build a church like this. Do you know what forgiveness is saying? Forgiveness, I was watching a movie, it said, forgiveness is the most underrated of all virtues. I think that is correct. Do you know what forgiveness is saying? When God says, turn to me and you are forgiven, he's saying, I don't see you ever through the lens of your sin and failure. I don't see you as a sinner, but as loved, holy, a saint like my son. I don't hold your sin and failure against you. It's as far as from the east as from the west. I don't hold it against you in how I relate to you. I won't ever bring it up and use it against you. Your sins and your faults don't stand in the way of our relationship. They will never, ever stop me from doing good to you. 
and from being for you now and forever. Do you see how that's revolutionary? This doesn't ignore or excuse or avoid sin and hurt. It's greater than that. It's God saying, I'm not, I'm not excusing it. I'm not minimizing all the pain and hurt and injustice in the world. I am bearing it, the cost, myself, so I can have you. If you're meeting someone for lunch and you forget your wallet, which I've done numerous times to my embarrassment, and the person you're meeting with for lunch says, that's okay, I got you, I'll cover it, you're thankful, right? But likely you'll forget about it in a couple years. And if someone says to you, your loans, what are they? Your mortgage, your car payments, all your debts. I want to cover it all. You won't forget about that ever. And if you learn they actually emptied their savings and investments to do this for you, you will never forget about it. It would completely revolutionize your economic world. If somebody ever owed you anything, you would remember it. It would change your relationship to money forever. This is the impact our forgiveness is meant to have on our relational world. At Trinity, we like to say a lot, what is the gospel? It's that I'm more sinful, weak, and broken than I ever realized. But I'm more loved and accepted and forgiven than I ever dared dream. And as we mature as Christians, the more we see the magnitude of our sin, the cost of our forgiveness, the more we know how much we're loved. That's the power of growth. We're awed by this. It's a source of our great joy and our growth. Jesus builds a church like this when we take that, when he equips us to take that into our relationships. We apply it to other people. It goes like this. The people God puts in my life are more sinful, weak, and broken than I will ever know. And the people God puts in my life by faith in Christ are more loved, cherished, delighted in, and forgiven than they will ever know. A church like this is built when we expect brokenness and sin and failure. Not theoretical sin, but real sin that hurts. And along with these sins comes wrong and misunderstanding. And so we have the expectation that asking for forgiveness and granting forgiveness is a regular thing. We expect it. We're not surprised by it. At the same time, we begin to see failures and hurts and disappointments as opportunities for me to show others how loved and cherished and forgiven they are in Jesus. I'm going to share one quote and close with this, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What this means is this, that the way that Jesus builds his church is through sin and disillusionment. Those are the greatest opportunities for us to become a church like this. Let me read this quote from Bonhoeffer. It says, Will not their sin, sins of uh, people in, in a church community, be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably salutary. In other words, this is an awesome moment where Jesus can work because it is so thoroughly teaching me that neither of us can ever live by our own words or deeds 
but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. We need a church like this because it reminds us and shows us how much we need Jesus. This is not possible apart from the forgiveness we have in him. If we struggle with commitment, don't we want a place and commit to a place where people will stay committed to us despite our sin and brokenness? If we struggle with ownership, don't we want to be a part of a place where everybody says, I want to own my part in showing you the forgiveness of Jesus? If we want to build a church like this, maybe the best place for us to start is to say, God, show me how much I've been forgiven and show me somebody that I can forgive. May Jesus build us to a church like this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture of this incredible community, this incredible church. The awe, the gladness, the sharing, the vitality, the sense that you were at work. We long for that in our lives, to be a part of a church like that. Thank you for the work you're doing among us in ways that reflect that church. And we ask and we plead that we would see more and more of it happening. We need it. Those who do not know you, those who would like to know you, those who are far from you need it. It's not possible in our own strength, in our own wisdom, and so we call upon you. Help us take those everyday little steps to forgive. Give us the resources we don't have to be able to do that and bind us together in Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.